So last week, we didn't get very far, but we started making our way in Colossians 3 through the garments that uh, the Christian is supposed to be wearing. And in verse 12, what we saw was a handful of extremely uh, helpful truths, I think, for, <clears throat> for the believer. The instruction in Colossians 3.12 begins with your identity because it is so utterly pointless to cloak yourself in Christian behavior if you have not first had an actual inward heart-changing experience where you come to know the true and living God. So Colossians 3.12, the very beginning says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. While there are, I think there are practical benefits for all of humanity to behave in a manner consistent with what Jesus commands and certainly to imitate his example, there's a benefit. If everybody lost, dying, saved, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, if everybody behaved like Jesus, the world would be a better place. So I don't mean to say that, that there would be no benefit at all, but I do mean to say there is almost absolutely no eternal benefit to a human being modeling their behavior after Jesus Christ if they don't know him as their own Lord and Savior. So Paul identifies us by these two titles, God's chosen ones and then holy and beloved. The idea of God's choosing who will and who will not be saved is antithetical to American culture and not much less among evangelicals. We're not familiar with this for the most part. We don't expect this doctrine, and, and I don't, like, I think it's because the American gospel actually usually leaves it out. Like, popular evangelical preaching has a tendency to present the gospel. I have to be so careful how I put this, because then is it the gospel? Popular American, Western evangelical preaching presents this gospel that portrays the sinner as uh, not dead in their sins, but more like dull in their sins. So Christianity in our culture is about uh, like sharpening the soul's senses, waking people up uh, or rousing some hibernating morality within. And so the, the illustration, I'm sure you've heard, because I've heard it countless times from preachers, and this is not to disparage them. Uh, it's just, it's a faulty illustration. But the one that I've heard most often is that uh, you are at sea um, in the water, right? And there's no land in sight. And so you're treading water, doing the best you can to survive. And here comes a ship with Jesus on it. And Jesus throws you one of those donut float things. And so you grab onto it and he pulls you up onto his ship. And so you are saved. But the reality is, if you believe the way the Bible presents uh, the condition of a sinner, the reality is we are not treading water because ages ago uh, we caught a glimpse of something attractive to us beneath the depths. 
There's some forbidden thing down there. It's an evil thing. It's a deadly thing that has lured us into the water and then down below the surface. We ignore all cries of warning from God. We sprint from the shore, dive head first in and then swim with total abandon for the bottom because we see something there that we want. We ignore the building pressure, the popping of our ears, the diminishing light, and the burning in our own lungs as we seek with everything that we've got to reach whatever that is down there that we, that we want. We, we, we fought all sensibility, preferring to reach out for whatever, whatever it is for you. Your legs are kicking and churning and propelling you deeper and deeper. And for some, yeah, it's sex. For some, it's drugs. For some, it's selfishness. For some, it's lying and deceiving. For some, it's wealth that draws them. For some, it's popularity that draws them. For some, it's murder. For some, it's coveting. For some, it's the neighbor's wife. But no sooner do we grasp the thing that we want so desperately in our clammy hands than we run out of air. And now, with no hope, of making it back to the surface, we are dead. The reality, the biblical reality, is that we are decaying at the bottom of the sea, dead in our sins and transgressions, and awaiting final judgment from God when Jesus plunges into the water, swims down, and snatches us from the bottom and draws our corpse to the surface onto the shore and then breathes life into us. So it's God's choice that saves us, not ours. Our choice was to go and die. His choice is to prevent that from being the permanent case. When we come sputtering to life, coughing up the remnants of our watery grave, we do so with genuine adoration for the one who rescued us. I don't know if you've ever seen these lifeguarding uh, videos on the internet. Uh, and in all my time working at Papio Bay, I never saw anything this dramatic. But it, at sea, when people go under, usually by the time they're brought back to shore, they're not just choking on seawater. They're, they're gone. And so the, the work of resuscitating them is quite dramatic and a good portrayal for, of what I'm talking about. When, when they come to and cough up the you know, water and like, you, come on. If that were you, don't you think you would just naturally appreciate whoever did that for you? I mean, you're not going to be like, I don't like the way you saved me from my watery grave. Maybe you come, your eyes open and you look at the lifeguard and they're not Baywatch caliber physique. It doesn't matter. You will be enthralled with that person who, who brought you back, right? His choice of us is the only means by which we are able in turn to choose him. So Colossians uh, 3 
says, put on then as God's chosen ones. He chose us holy and beloved. So as redeemed people, we are holy, which means we are set apart. That's all that means. We're different. We're parked over here. And then beloved means dearly loved. So God's view of us, since he chose to rescue us, this might be the most important thing you hear in this sermon, because I didn't believe it the first couple of times I heard this because of the theology that I was kind of raised on. God's view of you, since he chose to rescue you, is not one of constant, low-grade disappointment. He has, for all those that he rescues, profound affection and love. So we strip off our sopping, decaying clothes, and he gives us new garments. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, one can hardly be rescued like that. And then feel nothing if you were to watch other human beings racing into the water themselves. Or if you were to look down and see some corpse undulating uh, in the depths. You couldn't see that and feel nothing. Right? You've been there before. You remember what it took to rescue you. So these new clothes that we wear are practical in every way. Compassion dictates, basically, that we kind of like vibrate with sympathy for those poor fools who are yet in danger or already perished. I'm not better than them. It wasn't anything in me that drew God's attention. I was dead. I was doing nothing other than decaying in sin. Kindness... If I can carry the illustration too far for you, kindness dictates that we stoke the beach fire and sew garments for the others who are yet being rescued. Humility and meekness persuade us to recall our own helplessness when we encounter others who have maybe just been rescued with their damp hair, uh, their relentless shivering and the smell of those things which reside at the bottom of the ocean still emanating from them. We employ our gifts and graces to assist them, but don't pretend that it was us that drew them to the surface. So there's meekness and humility. And then patience. <clears throat> patience, I think, keeps us on the beach when we long to go to the Father's house and be done with the dark sea entirely. Amen? I've told you this before, but I think it bears repeating because some of you wonder why you are still here. Um, Youth and vigor have long since departed. And life has seemingly, I don't know at what decade this becomes an absolute truth. Maybe it doesn't if you have the right perspective. But life has seemingly delivered to you more sorrows than joys. You pass your days with a body that betrays you. Like things don't work like you want them to, right? Um, If there ever were moments, gone are the glorious moments when you used to build the fires 
sew the garments, and lead the effort. Now you sit and wait. And you wait with eyes that see dimly, and you listen with ears that miss much of what's happening around you. And so you wonder, why am I still here? I mean, compared to those with youth and enthusiasm and energy, I am useless. I think you're here for us. I think we need to be able to look at you and see that the rest of this passage is possible. Perhaps you feel like you aren't contributing anymore, but I assure you, if you are familiar with compassion, kindness, meekness, and humility, and patience, And if you're more familiar with those things than those of us who can still split wood, you're here for us. We need your stories, your songs, your prayers, and your experience. Because as we age, the the young look to us for, for an example of patience and meekness and kindness and humility and compassion, right? I mean, you might not be comfortable with that, but that's the reality. Young people don't usually look at younger people as an example of how to behave. You don't have to like it, but your kids are looking at you. You don't have to like it, but my kids might be looking at you too. If you're still here and you're not sure why, I I, I think... You need to remember that patience is the robe of the sage, not the sweatband of the axe swinger. You move a little slower in a robe, right? Maybe you just sit there and we'll come to you and ask questions. You are still cherished and needed. So the Holy Spirit saved verse 13 until now. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then just the beginning of 13 says, bearing with one another. Uh, I dare you. I dare you to not expend more energy avoiding this teaching than implementing it. I'm sure we can fill the room with excuses why we don't have to bear with somebody, right? Um, But let's deal with what it says and then see if you still have excuses. The verb here in the Greek, uh, kids, and that means anybody under the age of 43, kids, don't go to sleep just because all of a sudden it sounds like you're at school tomorrow. You're not. This is different. But I do have to educate you a little bit because I asked some adults that I know if they understood this, and they did not. So this isn't just directed at you if you're, if you're young. Um, the verb here in the Greek for bear with one another, it's, it's actually only one word. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. But the verb here only works, listen, the verb only works in the middle voice. In the middle voice. So I, again, I asked, hey, do you know what middle voice is? And adults in my life were like, no. I, what? So I'm going to tell you. Active voice is when in grammar the sentence subject performs the verb, the action. So the dog walked down the street. The dog walked, right? Uh, the dog does the walking. Passive voice is when the subject receives 
the action. So in the, the dog was walked by the owner. The verb goes to the dog, but it's somebody else doing it. Middle voice is when the subject both performs and receives the action. So you can identify these most commonly by the use of a reflexive pronoun. Himself, herself, themselves. So the children entertained themselves while we visited. The children entertained themselves, right? The man warmed himself by the fire. The woman trained herself to play piano. The children, the man, the woman, they both do the action and they receive the action. Are you tracking with me? You, are we okay? I need you to say yes. All right. Middle voice in this case. Our verb is literally to hold oneself up against. So in English, we would say endure. In English, we would say forbear or suffer. The problem is those verbs leave something critical out of what the Bible's saying. So look with me at Matthew chapter 5. I will get there sometime today. Matthew 5, uh, kind of middle towards the end, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, this is so well known. This passage has been... Um, uh, it's like a caricature of the New Testament. That's how well known this is. Turn the other cheek, give your shirt as well as your coat, go the extra mile. And I doubt very much that we've spent a great deal of time understanding exactly what's being directed here. Because the text isn't just saying, be content to be a victim. And that's what most Christians think it's saying. It's not what it's saying. Stay with me. You know, I'm always on the razor's edge of heresy, so today's no exception. Jesus' directive implies that you have the ability to do something different. So, don't resist the one who is evil implies you could resist. Turn the other cheek implies you, you could strike back instead or kick them or shoot them. Take their cloak as well as your own, right? Refuse to walk at all. Make them drag you. Uh, instead, the instruction to us is to be cooperative. Listen to me. The instruction to us is to be cooperative to the point of being partially responsible for what's happening, for our bruised face, our missing tunic, and our tired legs. This is completely contrary to the drumbeat of our culture. It's completely the opposite of the drumbeat of our culture. And I don't have time to cover all the angles here, so let me just say this really, really clearly. When we are wronged, as much as possible, we're supposed to bear it with grace. Amen? Yeah, we don't retaliate uh, because Jesus said, 
be content to be a victim. No. No, we're to bear it with grace. When we do not retaliate, listen, you might start to feel like you've become complicit in your own wounds. This absolutely does not compute in 2023. Our culture is marinated in personal defense. You do not allow someone to violate your sovereignty. Especially not in America. Your mandate is to get the negative people out of your life, right? Oh, you've never heard that. Oh, we need a whole nother sermon. I'm sorry. I thought I was talking to people that lived in the Western culture and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. I was mistaken. You're all philosophers. We live in a culture where the mandate is get the negative people out of your life. Is it not? Okay. I'm not saying that's the gospel mandate. I'm saying it's the cultural mandate. You will become preoccupied if you do this. Get the negative people out of my life. If you do this, you will become preoccupied with every little slight against you because the most virtuous thing you can be in a culture where the mandate is get the negative people out of your life, the most virtuous thing that you can be is a victim. There's nothing more virtuous than being a victim. So our society has constructed these totems of victimhood that we can climb up on top of to let everybody know how bad we've had it. I'm a minority. I'm a woman. I'm gay. I'm queer. I'm transgender. How are you a victim? Because if you're not one of those, you're an oppressor. That's our culture. Whatever else you do, you must identify your personal victim status and let everyone know how injured you are so that everyone will know how virtuous you are. If you're not a victim, you're not virtuous. And that means you must be complicit in oppressing others. The thing is, we often are victims of mistreatment, right? Who here has not ever been injured by another human being? Even at church. And Jesus is telling you to bear with one another. So if, if someone injures you, show them the cheek without the bruise. If someone injures you, show them the cheek without the bruise. Now, what we think that means is if somebody slaps you, show them the other cheek. Invite them to slap you again. That is not what that means. What it means is don't broadcast your injury in hopes of soliciting sympathy. Because if you get sympathy for the injury, you're going to point out the one that injured you. You're magnifying their sin against you. Turn the bruised cheek away. Reveal not the injury. If someone takes your coat, cover the theft by offering your shirt. Make it look like a donation. If somebody makes you stay late at work an extra hour doing their job because they're lazy, even though they get paid more than you, volunteer to do another hour of their job for them tomorrow as well. When we do not cry foul and let everyone know that we are victims, we might feel like we've become complicit in our own wounds. Why wouldn't we? At some point, someone will say to you, you're bringing this on yourself. You should stand up for yourself. 
You should complain. You should let everybody know how you're a victim. This is precisely what the text is suggesting should happen. You should become complicit in one sense in your own wounds. The middle voice that I mentioned earlier proves it. Listen, the children entertained themselves while the adults visited. The man warmed himself by the fire. The woman trained herself to play piano. The Christian wounded himself by not demanding to be treated with more dignity. Bear with one another. Let me state your objections. You were, I know, and I appreciate you staying calm through all of that. Your objections work like this. We bear with one another. And in so doing, we fail to let everyone know how important we are. You would never say it that way. I would never say it that way about myself. I'm saying that's how you would say it. And you're saying that's how I would say it, right? We bear with one another. And in so doing, we let people get away with things instead of holding them to account. Okay. We bear with one another, and in so doing, we enable thoughtless Christians to misbehave. We bear with one another, and in so doing, we surrender the right to be victims. You don't get to be both. If you're bearing with someone, you can't also be their victim. It just, it doesn't work. So what does it mean to turn the other cheek, give your shirt, walk the extra mile? What does it mean to bear with one another? The only caveat that I will add, or the only slack that I'll give us is to say that I do not believe that patterns of bad behavior are what are in view here. Now you can breathe easy, right? Okay, all right. So fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice. Patterns of bad behavior are not what, what are in view. Matthew 18 exists to deal with patterns of bad behavior. Somebody sins, go once, go twice, take it to the church, proclaim the gospel to them like they're an unbeliever. I believe what this is mostly talking about is those incidental injuries. Someone's having a bad day, someone's tired, someone's heartbroken, someone's struggling. You get caught in their tantrum. Bet me. Try this. It's hard. Next time, whoever the fit pitcher in your life is, and they're in the midst of their fit, if you can muster the gumption, rather than pitch a fit back or roll your eyes or put your hand up and walk away, ask them if they need a hug and ask them what's wrong. You want to see anger melt into what's really there? which is usually great sorrow, try that. Bear with them. Be kind in return. Don't return their insult. Don't return their thoughtlessness. And don't take it so personally. We take it personally because we want the victimhood status. They did this to me. Instead of bearing with, what I've seen and what I'm certain many of you have seen Look, you can just say you've seen it in me. You don't have to own this. I'll own it. Is this tendency to let everyone know who wounded me, how they did it, and solicit as much sympathy as possible for the wound. And then I feel satisfied that because I didn't target the perpetrator, I just let everybody else know that I've, like, I've, I was gracious. 
<laughs> and then, and then I'll like uh, I'll let the wound fester so that I'm reminded of how much I don't like, don't trust, don't want to be around the person that did it. These behaviors. This is wearing old clothes. This is not kindness. This is not compassionate hearts. This is not meekness and humility. So how do we do it? How do we bear with one another? The Holy Spirit is glad you asked, and that's why verse 13 continues. But we'll start at 12 again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So if you found fault with somebody, if you found somebody to blame for something, Forgive them as the Lord has forgiven you. So there, there's two questions we should probably try to answer here, right? Question number one, how has the Lord forgiven you? And question number two, how do you forgive another sinner in the same way? And I suspect the answer to the first question will provide probably the answer to the second question. If you were a Christian, oh, this is important. You're not going to care if you're not a Christian, but I really need you to listen. If you're not sure that you're a Christian, I really need you to listen because we're going to do the Lord's Supper thing, so I really need you to listen. If you are a Christian, that means babies too, got to listen. Uh, if you are a Christian, which means your heart has been captivated by God in the person Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, that means that your heart has been captivated by God in the person Jesus Christ. You believe you are a sinner. You believe you have broken God's law. You have done evil in God's sight. You can think of specific sins that you have done and your heart breaks because of them. If you're a Christian, these are things that are true of you. You have felt the guilt and shame of your sins. You understand and believe that God will judge all sin and that he has every right to do so. Look right at me. If you don't believe that God will judge all sin and has every right to do so, you are not a Christian. You are not a believer. You are a moralistic deist. The Christian believes God will judge all sin and has every right to do that. If you think that's a bit miserly of God to judge all sins, I don't think you're a believer. Let me keep going and you'll understand why. You believe that the consequence, if you're a Christian, you believe the consequence of sin is death. That all people who sin ultimately die because of their sin and all people sin. If you're a Christian, you believe the consequence of sin is death. That all people who sin ultimately die and all people sin. Right? So what's, what's everybody on their way to go do? What's everybody on their way to go do? Yeah, we're all... That's, what, that's where we're headed. And if that produces too much anxiety for you for a Sunday morning, stay with me. You're supposed to be a Christian. You believe that people who die in their sin are separated from God forever. There is an uncrossable chasm between those who die in their sins and the one that created them. You believe also that God will equip those people with a body capable of dying for eternity. 
I don't know if that means a literal lake of fire or not. I just know that you will have a body capable of dying constantly. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus was God and came into this world as a man. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus was God and came into this world as a man. You believe that Jesus did not sin, but perfectly upheld God's law and obeyed God's commandments. You believe that Jesus loved people even though they were sinners. He healed people, rescued people, even raised some people from the dead. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. These are essential things to believe. These are not peripheral, secondary things to believe about Jesus Christ. These are essential. You take these things out, you don't have Christianity more, anymore. You've got moralistic deism. You've got do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and God will love you, which is not the gospel. It's not Christianity. You believe that he healed people, rescued people, and even raised some from the dead. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Like, oh, I believe he healed people. I don't think he raised anybody from the dead. You're not a Christian. You are taking out the parts of the Bible you don't like and leaving in the parts that you do like. And what you now have is not God's word, but your own. You believe that in spite of his perfect life, his kindness towards sinners and his goodness, some people hated him. Sinners hated him. He was arrested and stood trial because he was falsely accused of sin. If you are a Christian, you believe that those who hated Jesus lied about him, beat him, jammed a crown of thorns on his head, stripped the flesh from his back, mocked him, and ultimately nailed him to a cross in order to kill him in the most notorious way the government could at that time. You believe that after he died on the cross, he was buried in a tomb. If you are a Christian, you believe all that. If you are a Christian, you believe that on the third day after he was buried, he was resurrected. He rose again. He came back to life and was raised from the dead by God. And you believe the reason that he did not stay dead is that he did not sin. And thus death could not hold him. If you are a Christian, you believe the reason that Jesus died was to pay the price for all those who believe in him so that even though they sin, they might have life. You believed all that, having become convinced in your heart that the Bible is true, and so you confessed your sins and asked for forgiveness. If you were a Christian, you did that. There's at least a moment where that happened, where you cried out to God privately in prayer to him and laid it out for him. Father in heaven, here's what I have done that I know is wrong and has defiled me and ruined any hope that I have of being in relationship with you, my creator. You confess your sins and you believe that your sins have been forgiven. That's 1 John 1 Eight and nine. If we say that we have no sins, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. 
That's what the Bible says. So you believe that. You believe that Jesus carried the guilt of your sin to Calvary. You believe that Jesus paid the price for your sins when he died in your place. Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin, not a sinner, to be sin on your behalf. If you're a Christian, you love Jesus. And your life is marked by a preoccupation with him. So you spend time in prayer. You spend time in your Bible trying to get to know him better. You love to be with God's people. Your life has forever been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you now look forward to when you die, waking up in the presence of God and being with him forever in fellowship because he equips you with a body capable of living forever. One without whatever diseases and maladies you're currently contending with. If you are a Christian, meaning you believe everything I just said Christians believe, then I have a question for you. If you're not a Christian, this question isn't for you. You should go back and think about all the other things I said you ought to believe. But if you're a Christian, here's my question. How did Jesus forgive you? How did Jesus forgive you? I mean, get an adjective or whatever in your head. I guess it would be an adverb. How did he do it? What kind of forgiveness was it? That is the fakest cry I've ever heard. It sounded like a moped. <laughs> Poor kid. I would hope that one of the answers you would give to the question is uh, 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 of how did Jesus forgive you? One of the answers you would give is just say amen freely. Did he forgive you freely? Like what, what, did, what did you have to give him in order to get forgiveness? Has anyone sinned against you? Do you have something to blame somebody uh, something to blame somebody for. Have you found fault with someone? Mark eleven twenty five says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Uh, that's not a, what do you call that? Proof text. I didn't take that out of context. It literally says, almost kind of out of nowhere in the passage, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven might, may forgive you your trespasses. So imagine that. Somebody has sinned against you, and in a minute you'll stand, well, probably, hopefully you'll sit, and you'll be praying, and you'll be considering why we're going to come down here and eat this bread and drink this grape juice from probably Sam's Club. Like, why are we doing this, Right? And, and as you're thinking about the relationship that you have with your Heavenly Father, things are going to come to mind that other people have done to you that were injurious to you. And what Mark 11 just said to do, was it Mark 11? Yeah, Mark 11, 25 said to do is, as you're praying and those things come to mind, what you need to do is forgive them. Well, where's the transaction? What are they supposed to pay you? What penance are they supposed to do? Well, I had to ask Jesus to forgive me. 
So they need to ask me to forgive them. Okay, here's the difference between you and Jesus and you and them. Jesus wasn't also a sinner. So Mark eleven twenty five and our text, I think, make it pretty clear that our giving forgiveness does not require the one who offended us to do anything. How can the relationship be restored if they don't repent? How about this? Do what the Bible says and wait and see what God does. I said at the outset, let's not expend more energy opposing the text than just implementing it. But these are hard things to do. And that's not me being hyperbolic. It's hard because we love being victims. And if you just forgive, it's harder to be a victim. We bear with one another by remembering the condition we were in when Jesus found us. Amen? Oh, let me try that again. We bear with one another by remembering the condition we were in when Jesus found us. Okay. So we're going to do Lord's Supper, right? And if you're a Christian, you remember how Jesus found you. You have something to remember. In fact, the directive to do this is... As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me, right from Jesus. He's the one that said to do it. He instituted this whole practice. And there are parts of it I didn't understand for a long time after I became a Christian. But uh, there are parts of it that I understood very clearly. And one of the things that I've always understood very clearly about this practice is, I don't know about you, I think it's probably true, it's definitely true of me. I get to this place once a month where... For, for a minute and a half, maybe two minutes, we sit here, right? We sit here quietly. And the reason I don't want you to rush right up here is, is the way we do Lord's Supper is we try to go in family units. I want dads to be priests in the home, have that opportunity to exercise that muscle and be the spiritual leader, right? If you don't have a family to gather with, no worries. Get, jump in with mine or one of the other elders whenever we go, or probably literally any other family would welcome you. Just jump in with them and do it. But I want you to sit there quietly for a minute because dads, maybe you need to do a little business before you get up here and stand praying. Don't leap up and sprint down to make sure you get some juice. Like, stop, think for a minute. How have I been forgiven? And is there anybody who I need to forgive? So there will be music playing just to cover the clearing of throats, the shuffling of feet, and, you know, whatever else might happen. And it's supposed to be a moment where we contemplate, right, where we remember, oh, that's right. I was dead in my sins and transgressions, and Jesus lovingly, rescued me. The least I can do, the least I can do is show kindness and compassion, forgiveness, bear with other sinners who are just like me. Amen? All right, so I'll put on some music and, and pray and then sit for a minute and then make your way down.